We're continuing our study through the letter of 1 John today. So if you have your Bible, in whatever form it might take, whether it's your phone, your tablet, your paper, old school Bible, or whatever it is, you can make your way over to 1 John chapter 5 today. John has emphasized three things in his letter of 1 John, which he has been repeating again and again, and he again repeats today. First, belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, who became a human being and died as a sacrifice for our sins. The second is the need to obey the commands of God. And third, the need to love one another. We could summarize John's teachings in his letter with three words, and we talked about this at the beginning of our study, but you could summarize it with three words, believe, obey, and love. And these three things that he's been talking about are presented by John as tests for identifying genuine, authentic followers of Jesus Christ, real Christians, true children of God. Belief in Jesus as the Christ is essential for our salvation. And obedience to God and loving others are evidence of the salvation that we now have. Well, in the passage that we'll be looking at today in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, John, he pulls these three things together, pointing out the interconnection that exists between them. So let's begin in verse 1. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. To begin, I want to make sure that we all understand what John means when he says Jesus is the Christ. People in our day sometimes think of Christ as the last name of Jesus, but that's not correct. His name is not Jesus Christ, mine is Jeff Miles. The name Jesus refers to this particular person. Christ is his title and his role. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed. When reference is made to Jesus Christ, it means Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, who entered our world as a human being, lived among us, died as a sacrifice for our sins, was resurrected on the third day, has ascended to heaven, and we are now waiting for his return. When John says Jesus is the Christ, all that is what he means. As mentioned before, this is a fundamental test that John has given for determining true believers in contrast to what the false teachers were saying. Is that mic still uh, working okay? All right, well, how's it sound for you guys? All right, well, there you go. It's the mystery of all of this. He gave this same test in 1 John 2.22 and then in 4.1 for identifying false prophets and antichrists. To be born of God, to be born again, to be saved, we must believe that Jesus is the Christ. John has said repeatedly in his letter that it matters what we believe. And here he says it again, that it matters what we believe. We can't just believe anything and think that's okay. It matters what we believe. We can't make up our own ideas about spiritual reality and eternal life and what God is like and how we carry out a relationship with God and then expect it to be true. That is what many people think and do in our world today, though. 
See, what is, is. Whether we acknowledge it or not, I can deny the existence of this podium, but it isn't going anywhere. I can wish that this podium is blue, but it isn't going to change color by me wishing it to change color. There is a spiritual reality. There is a God who created the universe and is actively involved in it. This God loves you and me and desires a relationship with us. But there is a serious problem, the Bible says, that prevents that from happening. We have sinned. We have ignored his holy law. We have rebelled against his authority over our life. We have chosen our own rules to live by, uh, living for ourselves to the detriment of others. And we have created gods of our own imagination to affirm our choices and behavior. God, though, sent his own son to die as a sacrifice for our sin, to be judged and condemned in our place, and then resurrected from the dead to give those who would trust and believe in him a new relationship with God as his child and eternal life. Coming up with our own ideas about God and how to be reconciled to him is not going to do you and me any good. Only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are we able to have our sin forgiven, have the judgment against us removed, and have eternal salvation and new life given to us. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ the born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. The child being referred to here are those who are born of God, believers, followers of Jesus Christ. John is saying the same thing he did over in 1 John 4.20, but in a slightly different way. If we love God, then we will love his children too, or we must love his children too. Those of us who are believers and followers of Jesus have a common father. We're part of the same family. We're brothers and sisters. We're siblings. The idea of us being part of the same family is a very important part of what church culture is supposed to be. Church is not a kind of club or social activity. It's a family, the family of God. And our interactions and involvement in the church should be on that level. Our commitment to one another should be as family. Jesus had something far more significant in mind for the church than people getting together once a week on a Sunday to sing some songs together and listen to a Bible study. His church is intended to be the most significant and meaningful social relationship in our life, a family, the family of God. In a biological family, there may be disagreements between siblings, but there is a bond that is always present and overrules any disagreements there may be. My biological brother, Steve, not the Steve back there, another Steve. Even though we loved each other very much, we fought all the time over almost everything. We were only a year apart and about the same size all the way through our childhood. So you can imagine it was a recipe for lots and lots of fighting. But... If someone else came against either of us, they had both of us to contend with. We were undyingly committed to each other. When we looked out for each other, we protected each other. We stood on the same side with each other 
always had each other's back. If one of us needed help, the other one was right there to help them. Why? Because we were brothers, and that's what brothers do for each other. Well, the same is true in the family of God, or should be, hopefully, though with a lot less fighting than my brother and I did. We're brothers and sisters caring for one another. John has told us before in this letter that love for one another is evidence of truly being born again, of really being a child of God, of having a true and saving faith in Jesus as the Christ. 1 John 3.14, for example, he says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Verse 2, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. How do we love the children of God? By loving God and obeying his commands. How do we love God? By loving the children of God and obeying his commands. How do we obey God's commands? By loving God and loving the children of God. I put together a real simple diagram that illustrates this for you. These three things are interconnected with one another. Love for God, love for others, and obeying God are deeply interconnected so much so that to do one is to do the other two, and failing to do one is failing to do the other two. If we love God, we will love others. If we love others, we will love God. If we love God, we will obey God. If we obey God, we will be loving God. If we love others, we will be obeying God. If we obey God, we will be loving others. Round and round and round. It's all connected. I want us to think about something that John is saying here, though. John is saying, as one of these interconnecting pieces, that our living an obedient life before God is how we love others. In other words, I am expressing love for others by obeying the Lord, by following his commands, by putting the word of God into practice in my life. And conversely, when I'm not obeying the Lord, then I am not loving others. For example, when I gossip about someone, cheat someone in business, be sexually active outside the marriage relationship, lie to someone, steal from someone, I'm not loving others. This same idea is taught in other places in the New Testament too. For example, over in Romans 13, Paul wrote this in 13.8, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm for a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. When we read the command to love others, we might feel at a loss about how to do that if we think of love as the romantic kind of love or the warm, friendly, feeling kind of love. There are people we may not feel love for, people we don't like, people we're repulsed by, maybe people we're angry with. How do we love those people? 
the love we are to have for others is not a feeling kind of love. If feelings of love are present too, that makes it a whole lot more pleasant for us. But feelings are not required for us to love others in the way that the Lord tells us to love. We can love all people by obeying the Lord's commands. You know, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't murder. Be honest, be kind, be respectful, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, defend the weak, befriend the lonely. All that is loving others, and it doesn't require any feelings, but rather an act of the will. The second part of verse 3 says, and his commands are not burdensome. The word translated burdensome, it means heavy, grievous, severe, oppressive. The commands of God, they can seem burdensome, heavy, grievous, severe, oppressive for the person who's not a child of God, who has not been born again, who has not had the Lord come into their life and begin changing them. Before I was a Christian, one of the most burdensome things I could think of was having to follow the commandments of God. Denying myself passions and lusts and wants seemed unimaginably hard and pointless to me. I mean, two questions I always had at the time was, how could I ever do it? And why would I ever do it? How could I ever do it? It seemed impossible to me. All of the rules and restrictions that I thought were required of me seemed overwhelming and awful. Why would I do it? I didn't see any point in not doing everything that I thought I liked doing. A life of humility and sacrifice and self-denial seemed weak and foolish to me. Well, after becoming a Christian, I learned that I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I did about what the Bible even said I could and couldn't do. I <clears throat> learned that I didn't know very much about what the real Jesus had taught. My knowledge about these things had come from sound bites, personal observations I had made about church people, and a collection of pseudo-Bible sayings that aren't even in the Bible, like God helps those who help themselves, God is next to cleanliness, and, you know, this kind of stuff. I learned, too, that I didn't really know very much about what really makes a person happy and fulfilled. For the child of God, the commands of the Lord are not burdensome at all. They are not heavy, grievous, oppressive things. The Lord's commands are a blessing. They're life-giving. They're wisdom. They're light for our path. To say the commands of God are burdensome to a child of God is like saying wings are a burdensome thing for a bird. A bird's wings enable it to fly, and God's commands enable us to live a good life. We have a hunger for his word and a desire to follow it. This hunger and desire are something that the Holy Spirit puts in us. It's a part of this new life that God gives us, the new heart that he has given us. Our perspective is fundamentally changed in every level 
of our being. Not only are we given a desire to please our Heavenly Father by obeying His commands, but we are given the ability to follow His commands. This was God's promise as part of the new covenant that would come through Jesus Christ over in Ezekiel 36.26. God said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to follow or to keep my laws. Jesus came to lighten our burden not make it heavier. Religion creates a heavy burden for people. God's salvation through Jesus, on the other hand, is a blessing of rest and refreshment. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Choosing to obey the Lord's word is not always easy. Sometimes it can be really hard. The old nature in us is constantly pulling on us to do what comes natural to it. But it's the heart's desire of our new nature to obey the Lord's commands. And doing so results in life and peace for us. Verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So is it that, or who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. What is this overcoming that John is talking about? He uses the word three times in these two verses. The word translated overcome in English, it means to conquer, prevail, be victorious. Well, what have we overcome? What are we overcoming? He says here, the world. Do we remember how John defined the world for us? Over in 1 John 2.16, when John was talking about what he means by the world, he said this, he said, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world, the lust of the flesh, the pursuit of one's own self-centered, God-independent goals and desires, placing oneself first, all that's materialistic and egocentric and exploitive and selfish, the lust of the eyes, coveting and wanting what one sees, being driven not by what's right and good, but by one's selfish gratification. The pride of life, glorying in one's self, one's possessions and accomplishments, forgetting and denying that all good things in our life are from God, a pervasive lack of gratitude and humility. These are not material things, are they? These are attitudes and motives and desires of the heart. These are the root of sin in our life which produce pain and misery and division and ultimately death in us and those around us. This is the world that we overcome through Jesus Christ. Everyone who is born of God, he says, overcomes the world. And to be born of God, we must have believing faith in Jesus 
as the Son of God. Well, this brings us full circle around back to the first verse we looked at today in chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ born of God. And there, I know that Mike died, huh? And it's been dying all along. Not too bad, just, just sometimes. But when John says we overcome the world, he's referring to the new life that a believer has, free of the world's stranglehold on us, and now able to live a life of love and obedience to the Lord. See, it's important for us to note that the overcoming, the conquering, the gaining victory that John's talking about is over the internal struggle we have. He's not talking about Christians engaging in some kind of holy war or crusade or jihad, conquering people in this physical world. The overcoming of the world being talked about is not directed toward other people. It's an internal struggle that we are faced with. We are facing down the value system of our old nature, the world in us, the mindset of our old nature in us, the view of reality of our old nature in us, and all that's affected by these things in our life. Well, closing, before the mic completely dies, apparently, I'll ask you this question today, that are you a child of God? Have you been born again? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who died at a, as a sacrifice for our sin and came back to life on the third day? Have you asked him to come into your life and give you this new life that we've been talking about today? I encourage you to do that if you haven't. See, until we are brought to life by God through faith in Jesus as our Savior, we're powerless against the lusts and the passions and the motives inside of us. The world. Obeying the commands of God can look like a heavy burden before we are brought to life by God. But when we are brought into this new relationship with Him, his commands take on a whole new character for us. We understand their life and wisdom and we obey our Heavenly Father because He loves us and we love Him. Who is it that overcomes the world? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this precious truth and the amazing thing that you have done for us through Jesus. We thank you for this new life that we have. We thank you that we have been forgiven of our sin. We thank you that we have this new character that you're growing in us. We thank you that we overcome the world through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who gave himself for us. I ask that you'd encourage and strengthen your people this week, Father. May Jesus be glorified in us. In his name we pray these things. Amen.